You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It's fascinating, that idea of the unspeakable just enough wetting our imagination with his in the case of M.R. James. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I love that idea too, the idea that the, the thing that makes um, the most mysterious horror and to me therefore the most frightening horror, uh, so frightening is the idea that the, the reader has to um, basically infuse it with their own uh, deepest anxieties. Um, for me, I'm, I'm a deep disbeliever um, and so uh, I often feel like the central, for me, uh, one of the great tragedies of my personal life is that uh, for me, the have, having no belief, having no metaphysical or spiritual belief system, um, the central uh, question of humankind, why are we here, um, has sort of already been answered for me. Uh, I, I feel you know, like science can answer all the nuts and bolts of it, uh, but the core thing that I grew up with as a very religious child um, has been sort of taken away from me by, by just merely what, you know, the decisions that I've come to about what I believe. And so for me, that, uh, this kind of hint uh, that, that you find in Lovecraft that the world, uh, that the universe is a completely, um, uh, uh, utterly devoid of any kind of nurturing energy, um, and that, that these, uh, that, that great, you know, in, in his case, sort of extraterrestrial creatures or gods um, are treating humankind as if they're just, you know, maggots or, or some kind of bugs. They're just barely even on their radar. Um, is uh, sort of much more disturbing to me um, than the idea that there's a very complex system of um, metaphysical uh, positives and negatives, good and evil, um, which I often find very difficult um, in in a lot of urban fantasy. The idea that there is a very great world that's that's um, that's you know capped by by some great race of beings. Um, I do, however, have a real soft spot for uh, urban fantasy works that are about God and the devil. Um, just having been raised Catholic, I just love that stuff. <laughs> um, and I think the thing that appeals to me about it is that it creates this mystery where when God is a knowable um, or, or finite being, um, then the question comes, you know, who made God? Um, and that, that, to me, I think is one of one of the most exciting things about uh, about urban fantasy that that is in that general subgenre, um, and uh, and one of the things that allows me to sort of go back to my childhood and and sort of rethink those thoughts that everybody has about the world when they don't have a whole lifetime of experience to put behind them. So, can you guys hear me without the mic, or do I need to? Okay, I'll aim it towards me anyway. Uh, for me, it was always gothic romances. <coughs> from the very beginning, uh, because the ghosts there, whether they're actual spectral or um, you know, a resonance or an emotional weight of, of the mad wife in the attic or however, um, it was the unknown, but more than that, they're the unavoidable. It's it, the ghosts of, of that is the weight of something that must be dealt with before you can go on and continue to live life properly. And that always had this, this immense power to me of uh, something that you cannot hide from, that cannot hide from you, it, it needs to be dealt with because it's always there, right over your shoulder. And gothic romances, I always felt, uh, just nailed that. I grew up, um, Barbara Michaels, I think it was, who did 
the, the very classic modern um, Gothic romances uh, where the purpose of the ghost was to make us aware of the fact that we're blind. To go back to the, the classical, the, the, the modern interpretation of that mystery was being aware of the fact that there is something haunting us, there is something um, just um, obstructing our view. And that is really where I fell in love with this particular genre. I think that one of the things that I, you know, and I don't really do urban fantasy, I do a lot more ghost stuff, but one of the things I like about the ghost story combined with the mystery is that to me it's a second chance at justice. And that's really the way I see it. In a lot of times, we see we see stories in which the ghost comes back and says, "Solve this crime." You know, this is how I was murdered. And I have been trying to remember the name of Tamar Siler Jones' first novel, "Ghost in the Snow." "Ghost in the yeah, Snow." That was Thank fabulous. you. And she wrote. She's actually written three that I've read. And you know, in which case we have a cast. I guess Castellan is the right word. Mm -hmm. And he's basically ghosts come to him and try to get them to solve their murders. And it's really a wonderful concept that there is this second chance for justice for what they did, you know, for what was done to them. And I think even, I was looking at Turner's Screw in some way was the same thing. The two ghosts that are battling over possessing the children, you know, the, the sorry, the governess has the chance to save them. And so I think that's one of the things I do love about the ghost stories. It gives you a chance to go back and set right what wasn't ever done during the person's life. Go ahead. Uh, great. So we've heard about some writers that have stayed with the writers, from M.R. James to William James, Lovecraft to Barbara Michaels, and can you tell me the first names of Jones? I didn't catch all the names. Tamara Seiler, T-A-M-A-R-A, Seiler Jones. Great, thanks. A question now that I would like to start off with my far right with Kathleen, is this. In stories and in, light, in life, doubt is something that both frustrates and fascinates. There's a human desire for certainty. Give me closure. But there is our love for enigma. And so we read on and on. And sometimes we wake up in the night thinking about a story or a novel. All those mute facts and frayed ends and leaked works, leaked worlds stay with us, beckon, tantalize. We won't forget the experience of that book because of all that cannot be known in it. My question, starting off with our far right, my far right with Kathleen, from a writer's point of view, from your point of view, how is Enigma? or doubt best carried through a story, a novella, or a novel? What is needed in a work structure to draw us into mystery and support the trance? I'm going to, I'll use a personal example to cite this in a minute, but uh, one of the things that we talk about, we, you know, writers always talk to each other online a ton, so half of you, some of you know that. Um, but we were talking about the structure of mystery and the structure of romance and how there's almost a perceived contract with the romance writer that certain things will happen at a certain set. And in the same way there is such a thing with a mystery writer, fantasy and specula other speculative fiction doesn't qu 
quite have the same. But if you're writing a mystery, there are certain things that need to fall in place at certain times. And when I was writing the first uh, mystery that I sold to Baines, it, one of the editors said, you need to foreshadow who the villain is by having them appear early into the story. So I had to go back and the, you know, the editor said, would you make this change for me? And of course, I said, of course I can do that. <laughs> so I, w I went back and made the change, but that was the first time I had really had somebody say that to me. And I've observed that in a lot of the mysteries I've read since that day that, you know, we have a certain amount of foreshadowing that we have to do, but we have to be very careful not to reveal you know, too much in advance. So there's a very close balance there of required foreshadowing and yet not giving, the, giving away the enigma. Uh, for me, it's, it really comes both as an editor, which I was in, in the previous corporate life, and as a writer, it comes down to two elements, the emotional hook and the in intellectual hook. Uh, if you want to draw the reader in, if you want to keep the reader in, you have to give them those dual hooks. One isn't enough. Um, there needs to be the thing to know, the investigation, the mystery, the question. And there also has to be the need to know. There has to be some reason for both the character and the reader to, to give a damn about what's going on. And you have to put both, you don't have to put both hooks in at the same time, but you have to have them both in, in the first fifth of the book. Otherwise, the follow-through just doesn't work. And if you can do them both skillfully without the reader even realizing they've been hooked, that makes a brilliant work, in my humble opinion. Uh, <laughs> great. I want to remind us that we can jump in at any time. We're being very polite, but if there's something <laughs> that fascinates you, please, we'll just go where we want to go. For instance, I was very interested in both of your comments that idea that certain things must fall into place at certain times from Kathleen. What happens if you deliberately uh, fight that formula? Your readers won't like it. Uh, <laughs> rebellion. You know, we, we talked a little bit about literary. Yeah, how that <laughs> happens in real life, though. You know, that if a police department is investigating a murder, you know, they're not going to see the murderer peeking around the corner the day after the murder. It doesn't always happen. It does happen. It does happen in real life, but a great deal in real life, a great deal of the time in real life, that particular incident does not happen. I think that in writing mystery, though, it's a little bit, it's, it's fiction. Mm -hmm. So we structure the world around to make it work the way we want it to. And so that gives us a sense of closure to have seen this person in the beginning and to see this person at the end. It also depends on what kind of mystery you're writing. I mean, the Retriever series were caper novels, basically. They're not classic. You already know exactly what's going mm -hmm. to happen. You just don't know who's going to get involved and how. So all the players are already up front. And it's how things the evolve from that, the, the, the mishaps. Uh, so uh, the information is all there, but it's not in a classical sense. Uh, you may not recognize the fact that you've already been given the information. Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, w one more question I had. Uh, Lauren Ann mentioned something, and it made me ask this. How do you make a writer give a damn? The, re the, the reader. Uh, the, re the writer gives a damn already. <laughs> but how do you make the reader If the writer doesn't right. give a, a damn, damn, you may as well yeah, be writing yeah, something yeah, else. Exactly. If, you know, you they catch it from you. Yeah. yeah. And if you yeah. don't have it, they're not going to get it. You can always tell a book where the author really, really, really 
cares about the characters. Not maybe loves them, maybe not even likes them, but cares about them because that comes through. That's uh, what I always tell uh, writers when I do workshops is if you aren't involved in the story and you aren't fascinated by what these characters are doing, why should I be? And that is what, what brings you in. The emotional hook has to be something that, that catches at the reader, um, not necessarily in a manipulative way, but simply because this is a real character and you want to know why they're being haunted, why they're having these nightmares, who is out to get them, who is gaslighting them, why. All of those things have to come out of your caring about the character. Um, is it true that the more you care about the character, the more imperfect that character is? Rougher around the edges, has flaws. No. What do you think? No. no they I are, they're like people. Yeah. That's the whole point. They're like people. They're like abstracted people. So that whatever you do, I mean, if they're already s flawed, the more be involved you become with them, the more flawed they will become. But if that's not the case, it won't happen. Whatever, whatever you've got them doing to begin with, what your concept is, the as they become more real, they become more so of whatever it was that was in your, your initial impulse. And you may not understand what that impulse was. I mean, I, sometimes, I, sometimes you figure it out at the last page, and you go, oh, that's what this book was about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sometimes it, it takes five or ten years, yes. too. <laughs> you know? also, also, being involved in a character doesn't necessarily make them, um, what was the phrase you used? The Flawed, you said. No, no, or, yeah, it, sometimes you, the more involved you are, the more perfect you want to make them, and that's a, a real danger for a writer is to know when to step back and say, okay, this, you're on your own now. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you get a Mary Sue. <laughs> you know, and it is one of those things about uh, that as a writer you have a lot of control over is the first impression that your character yes, makes. Yes, and then after that mm -hmm. they're on their own. Yeah, yeah and, mm -hmm. and really you control the situation in which they are first presented to the, to the reader. And so, you know, you can probably, you would probably not profit by having the first scene where they're beating up their mother. Um, Unless that's what you wanted. Uh, well, yeah, but you know, you, you it's you hard to make a good guy out of a guy who beats up his mother. Yeah, I, I'm just you have to make the mother really <laughs> over the top. Challenge. <laughs> but 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 you can have it the, the next scene where they're helping a puppy dog across the street. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you know, it is very much in the author's control how they very first present, you know, what first impression their character makes. And I think that if you make a poor decision, it's much harder for the reader too. Uh, give a damn about your character. Oh and yeah. So they, you know, and they spend the rest of the time trying to go. And there's some authors who have done that to great effect. That's Where true. you spend the rest of the book really not wanting to like this character yet. Be, I mean, using a, a media example, how many of you watch Dexter? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is a character you really should not be liking, people. <laughs> <laughs> So why don't we let Tom talk? Because we've been monopolizing. Right. <laughs> I, well, no, I just, I love that you use the term Mary Sue. Does everybody know that term? Um, oh. The term Mary Sue Marty is, Stu is, is or Marty Sue <laughs> is, is for the guys. 
The term Mary Sue is, is means, um, and it, it grew out of fanfic, um, fiction that was written based on uh, media properties, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, stuff like that. Um, and uh, it, it means a, uh, an overly idealized version of the author. Um, so uh, somebody who, you know, graduated from Harvard, you know, magna cum laude, and has, you know, three PhDs, and is summoned to the Vatican. And to high cheekbones. Right, high cheekbones, yeah. and cerulean and hair, hair, and, and, yeah. and onyx eyes, and, you know, and... <laughs> Yes, violet eyes are good. Yes. So um, this is one of the things I think that uh, undermines mystery uh, in a work because um, we tend to be actually fascinated not only by people who are uh, we as a species, we as readers tend to be I think uh, fascinated not only by people who um, uh, are are you know what we love, but people who perturb us. Um, you know how how many people who really annoy you can you just not stop thinking about and not stop being annoyed by? And I think that's one of the things that are sort of really negative um, character, uh, or really um, a character who you know beats his mother, <laughs> or 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 the less extreme version of that, but does something that's annoying to the reader. Um, and I think that uh, the I, I wanted to say in response to one thing Quinn said that um, the readers catch it from you. The readers actually might catch it from you <laughs> if you're right. lucky and if you do your job right. Because I've read many, many books. This is particularly common in, in mysteries and I would say like uh, governmental thrillers and political thrillers and stuff like that where it was really obvious that the author is just in love with their character. Um, whether or not they're really a Mary Sue. Um, and, uh, and, and they just would go on and on and on and on and on about them, and I just couldn't care. Um, so so that, that is always a risk, that you may care very much about your work, and the, the other end of that is being able to communicate it. Um, so, so that's important. Uh, and I think I lost track of the question. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but the, thing, the thing that's most, um, uh, the, the, question, uh, the question actually was, how is Enigma best hid, hidden within a story? And I think when it comes to mysteries in particular, um, uh, and uh, and to a lesser extent, ghost stories. I'm actually most satisfied um, by those those books and stories that um, uh, the question is not uh, what happened, not who done it, but um, how screwed are we, um, <laughs> and and how do we get out of it? So that's again more of a caper, uh, more of a what's going to go wrong, what you know, what crazy things are going to happen, what wacky things are going to happen in the case of a caper, or in the case of of more of like a thriller. Um, you know, how do we get out of this this horrible, unthinkable situation that w just gets worse for the first two thirds of the book? That's actually a really good point. One of the things that the classic mystery uh, these days is divided into two categories: what we call the timetable right. mystery and the character mystery. Um, and the, the example we usually give is Agatha Christie versus Dorothy L. Sayers, both fabulous writers of a completely different sort of the same genre. And yeah, I I, I don't write. Who done it? I write why done it, which mm -hmm. I think is a lot more interesting because who done it? You can a smart reader can figure it out unless you're cheating on them and you know pulling clues in at the very last chapter. But the why done it requires a lot more investigation a lot of times and ends up with more interesting results both for the investigator and for everyone in the vicinity. And that's I think where a lot of the the emotional impetus, especially as we were talking earlier about the ghosts of whether the ghosts of past, present, or future, he's one of my favorite uh, uh, books, um, what's haunting us. That's much more interesting than what they drive us to do. I like how done it myself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they're awfully hard to write. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
to add more about how to curate Enigma through a, a story that you capture? Well, how do you carry Enigma through a story? Um, I really don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I know what I'm doing it, yeah. Yeah. but right. ask me what I'm doing and I can't yeah. tell you. You know, I, ca I, I can say, okay, they're going here. I hope they know how they're going to get out of it because I know how this book ends, and that seems like a funny way to get there. You know, there was a, I was reading They're the other day that yeah. Agatha Christie <laughs> would write books and she did not know how they ended. Mm -hmm. And she would go back, once she realized, you know, she got three quarters of the way book through the book, she said, oh, that guy did it. <laughs> and then, you know, she would go back and put in little hints mm -hmm. that led to him, but she would write most of the book along her own way where she didn't know <laughs> what it was. Well, I've always felt if you, if you know how the book ends, why write it? I mean, I when I'm writing, I it's write through. I write through about nine tenths of mm. the book, and then I leave the last chapter unwritten until I go back and rewrite the first section, because once I finish it, I'm done. And I, I guess it's, I, I write like a reader. I guess in a lot of ways. <laughs> I very much write like a reader, and I just had almost a panic attack and just about fainted, thinking, "What would happen if somebody read the first draft of a mystery story I had written?" <laughs> so yeah, the 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 mystery rewriting is the mystery writer's best friend. That's true of every uh, of all works, but with Not mysteries, really. really, you don't think? No, but I'm a first draft writer. Yes, yeah, so oh, okay. people people do it two different ways: straight yeah. through or rewriting. But how do you how are you able to create an actual mystery with the proper clues and stuff like that in your I first do, draft? I do an odd form of outline for mysteries that says by halfway, by a quarter of the way through, we have these things have to have mm -hmm. happened to these people. Mm -hmm. By halfway through, these things have to have happened to these people. By three quarters of the way through, all the way through to the end. And then getting there, I, I leave that up to them. I mean, okay. I've got the itinerary, but they've got the route. Mm. But yeah, the way I described it is I've got the skeleton. Yep. That all the rest of the layers have to come from that. Yeah. And, and you know, it's never so clear to me as it is the first time through. If I have to go back and rework it, I begin to lose that. I'm, I guess I'm the other kind of writer. Dashiell Hammett said, throw up into your uh, typewriter every morning and clean up at noon. <laughs> I'm much more <laughs> one of those kind of writers. Oh, thank you for that image. Yes. <laughs> Just before lunch. Well, I'm fascinated by the idea Laurie-Ann just mentioned. Uh, if you know how the book ends, why write it? Because the people don't shut up till you do. Ah, yeah, they're demanding <laughs> the book. Right? Oh yeah. So in a sense, the writing is a self-exploration. It's a kind of a hunt for oh, the mystery. No, it's a self-exorcism. Yeah, self it's both. Is better, it's both. Right? It's yeah. it's if if I write this, will you guys shut up and leave me alone? Yep. Kind of thing. Yeah, we're all slightly borderline. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's very much. I mean, the the act of writing a story, whatever the story is, is a mystery because you are blind to how it's all going to turn out. Well, I just met it right back to the question, didn't I? Um, you're, you're not, even if you have an outline, and I, I have very clear outlines before I start, but my outlines are like Google directions. They're perfectly accurate until they're completely wrong. <laughs> and I will be writing along there, and I will discover what it is I'm writing about, what I'm trying to say with these characters as I get towards the end. So that's, I mean, you ask how do you carry the enigma, the answer is you carry it on your back. Uh, follow this question along. Maybe we can start off with Thomas. Does an explanation, does certainty, an explicit solution to the mystery, 
demean the work, demean the grandeur of fantasy, uh, of our dreams, or what comes after this life. Our ambiguous solutions in these kinds of fictions, ghost works, urban fantasy, generally preferable to definite ones, where there really is a solution to the mystery. Thomas, please. I think it can really go either way, um, but I, I think that really the, the um, most works, the important question is not uh, what happened or, or what, you know, what the facts are, but what do they mean? Um, and I think that uh, even if you don't know what happened, in most of my favorite works at least, you know what it means. So you know, um, you may not know where, what place it holds in the pantheon, in the, the structure of the universe, um, but you know what it means to you. Uh, and I think that's the most important thing to me that's a little bit, maybe, a little bit of an end run around the question, but um, I think in many ways it doesn't matter. It really, it really depends on whether the writer has those uh, sort of spiritual fundamentals, at least for, for my satisfaction. Are ambiguous solutions generally preferable to explicit solutions? Depends on the story. Mm -hmm. Right. Each story has its own rules. Right. And you have, right. you know, you've got to play by them because otherwise everybody shuts up. Yeah. And they sit there and gonya at you until you say, okay, you can have this ambiguity or lack of it. I've got a similar answer from a different direction, mm. I think, in that, yeah, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish with the story. Uh, what you want to leave the reader with. Do you want to leave them with an answer or do you want to leave them with a further question? And that will answer the question of which is better. What I really but it's definitely individual to each story. What I really like are the ones that, you know, you answer the immediate question but it implies uh, mm -hmm. a whole universe more. Uh, yeah, it's time for grad school now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah you've, solved the you've solved the riddle, but now let's get down to the real issue. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, but it, it does depend on what you want, what each story is trying to say. And what what the uh, underlying point below beyond the entertainment value is, and I think every good book has to have that, uh, no matter what level it's at. No, and it's just you know we're looking here, and there were I think five or six original propositions in the first movement of different things these stories could have been trying to solve, and so I think a definite answer is useful at some times, and an ambiguous answer mm -hmm. is much better at other times, and it just really depends on the mystery as to which one is going to be the most satisfying for the reader. And I think probably it's gonna vary too. There's some readers who just aren't gonna be satisfied with an ambiguous, no matter what you write. Also, there's oh, the yeah. quest there's a yeah. question of, is the ambiguous or the, the finite answer for the reader the same as it was for the characters? Most of it was different. In yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, if, if yeah, who are you poking and how? Yep. Yeah. I'm, I just want to say I'm a huge fan of the kind of witty story where um, the the characters are not in on the joke and the the reader the reader knows what's going on the author knows what's going on um, and I think that that's partially because it, for me it always creates a tiny doubt in my mind you know is this what's going on or not or it just it there's more meat to sort of you know to dig into uh, when you don't know when the characters don't know well one of the things you can do with urban <coughs> fantasy and this kind of thing is, is, is the sort of stuff that Florence Smith did back in the 20s and 30s. And those kinds of really elegant comedies of manners, you know, with uh, goddesses and gods from the Greek uh, pantheon coming, you know, to disrupt the lives of department store owners and things like that, or Topper, which is, of course, his most popular <coughs> series. Um, 
those were social commentary. And they were very good, and they, they actually worked very well as, as ghost and supernatural stories as well, and they were relentlessly urban. Mm -hmm. Wonderful things, so very, very funny. Well, I'm fascinated by a couple ideas that you've raised here. What, one thing that Thomas said really struck me is uh, don't look at the facts, but at the meaning of the facts. And then what lies beneath that, there is no meaning to those facts. It's a haunting idea. What the panelists seemed to also agree on was that idea that in solving the mystery, you hint at what lies beneath it, the, the bigger bigger issues beneath it, that, that makes it potent somehow. That in solving something, it's not worth it if you solve something and that's it. What makes it worth it is if you solve something and in so doing you raise more questions that are in the end more haunting questions. Our last point, our last movement question here, the Minnesota novelist Tim O'Brien once said, quote, mystery is what carries us on, end of quote. Now I'd like to turn that around. I'd like to ask uh, the panelists, starting with Laura Ann, can you think of some ghost and urban fantasy stories that succeed for you and other readers, other writers and readers, despite the fact that they do not build mystery or they don't build mystery that well or they do not attempt to solve it, or they do not supply a range of ambiguous answers for us to ponder over and select from. In other words, what is lost when mystery does not live in the story, novella, or novel? I can answer this question in one word and then slightly longer. The one word is no. Um, <laughs> I really can't because mm. what you're describing is a collection of beautiful writing or potentially beautiful writing, but there's mm -hmm. no story. And I love beautiful writing, but I demand story to be satisfied. Um, that's what I'm looking for. So if, if there's this beautiful piece of writing that describes everything lovely and evokes something, but doesn't actually do anything with it, it's not gonna satisfy me, and I'm very likely actually to be extremely annoyed with the writer. You know, oh sorry. <laughs> There's an example, there was a r book that I really liked, but it is not a ghost story. And uh, although it was partially a theory, there's a mystery writer called M.K. Wren. Mm -hmm. And uh, lovely mysteries. And one of them called A Multitude of Sins, I think, I had the killer on page 31. And it was, I don't know who did it, it was the editor's fault maybe, but they used a phrase that reflected the title of the book in regards to a character, and it gave away the plot on page 31. <laughs> you know, and, and I did read it, it was wonderfully written, it was a wonderful book, but somebody had made a flaw in that book, and I don't know if maybe an editor did that or if it just somehow slipped by unnoticed, but it did give away the mystery on page 31. Sorry, I'm never gonna forget that. <laughs> so, so there is. And notice how she immediately blames the editor. <laughs> I, she's too good. It couldn't have been her. <laughs> so, so I'm just saying, you know, it, when it happens that there's not a mystery there, it is. 
hard to read on unless it is beautiful writing and, and pretty much beautiful storytelling is the only thing that you're holding on to. So I would think that there are cases in which just the storytelling is so good because people do read a lot of things that aren't mysteries mm -hmm. and enjoy them. But Well, it, but you're, you're saying mysteries become a genre, but at the heart of any storytelling is the mystery, the unknown that we're discovering, whether it's, well, okay, in romances you're pretty sure she'll end up with him and he'll end up with her, but um, not always exactly what's going to happen. I mean, that is the heart of storytelling is is what what is the story that I don't know what's going to mm -hmm. happen. So I think if, if you're not carrying through that, which is how I read the question, then you don't even have that. You don't even have the, the discovery of, of things going forward. That's true. Any deeper, rather than yeah. just the, the obvious. Well, you know, Steinbeck, bless his buttons, said uh, that stories are things about people in trouble. Mm -hmm. And when the trouble is over, so is the story. Yes. Thomas, what would you like to add about, um, about this? I, I, I agree that, that if there's not a mystery, then it's just, a, you know, it, it's just potentially beautiful writing. Um, I, I mean, that's, uh, uh, however, I do also think that there's, um, this is one of the things that I find frustrating about um, much uh, mo kind of modern literary fiction, um, which is that it assumes the magnitude of the mystery at a level that I don't feel. Um, the author's stories about their childhood, for instance, may feel very, it's just a very popular literary, you know, in mainstream literary fiction, um, kind of university literary fiction, it's a very popular theme. Um, they, they may uh, feel a sort of sense of disjointedness or a sense of uprootedness that I don't feel about my own background, and I certainly don't feel about theirs. Um, <laughs> so I think what, what you end up with in that case is very similar in some ways to a haiku, uh, in that it's an observation um, and in, in being purely observational, um, it kind of assumes a, a, a hugely profound mystery of experience uh, that really, I, I think, uh, in many ways can be very precious, um, but it's extremely difficult to communicate and it's, it's really not, it requires a lot of the reader. So what do you feel about postmodernism? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so it, it requires a lot of the reader and I think it's very different from plot-driven fiction. Um, which ultimately probably gets at the same set of mysteries, but um, but does so in a, a much more um, uh, in a way that's much I, I think easier as a reader to connect with. Obviously, since that's primarily what I read is plot-driven fiction, even when I'm reading mainstream literary fiction. So, and the the last word on this last question, Quinn, <laughs> is there anything that can compensate in works like this, urban fantasies and ghost works that don't have a lot of mystery? Is there anything that can make up for it, or is it, in, in a way, a uh, very limited work without well, mystery? Well, characters can. Yeah. If you've got Char characters who are totally engaging, you can almost forgive them anything, including not having a very interesting life to write about. But if you don't, if you don't have really interesting characters, I mean, and they don't have to be necessarily very nice people. I don't know about you, but I'm, I really, I cannot stand Sherlock Holmes. If I were Dr. Watson, I would take it a frying pan and hit him upside the head in, you know, in, in about 20 minutes. But on the other hand, he is fascinating. And so even though I would appall having lunch with him, I mean, that's what a, what a loathsome thought. Uh, but Watson might be fun to have lunch, lunch with because he's, he's a person who is much more accessible. But because of the way Doyle structured it, you can actually be fascinated by this guy who is probably two notches off psychotic. 
And if you get that, if you get the character, you know, you'll go anywhere with them, even, even to places that ordinarily you don't want to go. But if you don't have the character, it really doesn't matter because you won't stick by them. Uh, this audience is so well behaved. <laughs> Wonderful. We happen to have one half of the editor team, uh, Mr. Chris Roden, of the new Barnes & Noble Deluxe Leatherbound Edition Sherlock Holmes Omnibus, <laughs> and, uh, sitting in the front row. And this is, this is so ready. civilized. <laughs> this is not a wrestling match. I love uh, how polite you are. Well, Bill Charles Fawcett and I did uh, four Mycroft Holmes books. Oh, okay. Yes, so, yes, I mean, she speaks I, from I, experience. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, I would like us to show appreciation for these remarkable authors, and I want them to know they have an open invitation to come to the college I teach at, Lone Star College, Houston, Texas, to speak anytime. What a rich talk it was. Thanks so much. Great. I now open the floor to you. Any comments, questions? Answers. Right, right. Please, sir. You know, you, you shake, but it's a very different shake than a brew. And a brew is that cold finger that goes yeah. up or down your spine, from which, of course, you or, get or gruesome. The, or, the, or the scrape of the nail. Yeah, along, yes, the, yeah, on the, the unpleasant, Or no, even just you know, the unpleasant scrape of the talon yep. kind of thing. Whereas, yeah, fishing can be really nice. Can be good ice cream or, yeah, the, the <laughs> border, borderline <laughs> rude comment. <I> <laughs> Yes, this is yes. We, we we're keeping this one clean, at least for now. <laughs> ah, come on, wake up! <laughs> we'll Please, Christopher. Wonderful writer, wonderful writer. Yes, well, for one thing, I don't think he's that obscure, but that's me. <laughs> but they're also, he doesn't tell you very much about them. He just tells you they're awful and lets you build your own, which is everything, you know, your personal demons are going to be much more frightening to you than, say, his personal demons or mine. And the more that you can hook into letting somebody build their mm -hmm. own, the better bang you're going to get for your buck. And, and uh, James, I mean, the end of a whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, is enough to make me you know, avoid any laundry for weeks on <laughs> end. And, and just <coughs> that, that whole implication of menace, but without so much definition that you say, oh, well, that's you know, that's a giant tarantula. I can take care of that. As soon as it's a giant tarantula, it or isn't a scary. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Whatever it is, you know, once you, have, once, you, once you have its name, it's the old, the old magical thing that once you've got its name, you can control it. I think that's why a lot of uh, modern horror does not work as well as the old style stuff because it's too explicit, it's too mm. obvious. 
and especially when you start talking about the depopularizations of splatter horror yep. and, and explicit horror, I can't be scared by something that I'm shown in its entirety, because once it's shown, it's known. Right. Well, you know, the, the uh, uh, Aristotle, when he was defining things about, about aesthetics and all that, said that uh, horror is fear of the unknown and terror is fear of the known. So you have the problem that a lot of people say it's, they say it's horror, but it's terror. I have a question while you're thinking of some more connected to what the first gentleman asked and what some of the panelists have mentioned. Many of the work that you've, much of the work that you've done, I would consider some of it erotic horror. On the one hand, I know what eroticism is, and I think I know what horror is. Now, how do you, in erotic horror, keep it from slipping into one or the other? I, I've seen authors do this so marvelous, marvelously, keep things on, an, on the razor's edge. Isabel Carmody has a new story called The Stranger out in Exotic Gothic 3 in November. And she keeps that edge of desire and repulsion right, right there on the razor's edge the whole way through in this long story. And I'm curious about this. I know a few moments ago, Quinn, you raised the idea that the hand moving down our body can make us feel, it can be gruesome, it can bring out grew, or it can be pretty exciting. Now, how do you keep that balance? What balances? How do you keep it erotic horror rather than just slipping into, as you say, something uh, like splatterpunk, something ghastly, or something just um, titillating but not exactly shivering? And I might add, too, Thomas has a number of great stories that he wrote online that you can hear him read himself, and they w are absolutely addictive. You will, you will love them. I can say personally you'll so like them. Selling, well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, <laughs> so the question is, um, how do you, in writing erotic horror, um, how do you, or, or gothic erotica, I guess would be another way to put it, how do you keep it from falling into one or the other? Um, the, and I think uh, that um, there was a most of you probably either didn't catch this on your radar or weren't around for it, but um, there was a, a movement in, I would say, the, the early to mid-90s toward this very explicit, very extreme kind of erotic horror that really crossed sort of, of horror and porn. Um, and I was a little bit associated with that movement, and um, I, it was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit of an odd man out there because um, I don't actually find that that interesting in many ways. Um, I think there was a lot of powerful writing, but the problem with re with most erotic horror is um, that it assumes uh, that sex is going to destroy you. Um, that, uh, you know, the, the classic thing that editors say they don't want when they're editing erotic horror is, you know, don't ever send me a story about somebody gets picked up in a bar, goes home, and the person turns out to be a vampire and kills them. That's really stupid. And, um, and I think that, that that tends to be the pattern that a lot of erotic horror uh, follows. And in, in that sense, it's really basically pornography uh, in a very straight, straightforward sense of that word. Um, I think uh, that the thing that I find more fascinating is the idea that um, sort of eroticism um, in its seductive capacity makes you do things that are hugely problematic for you. Um, the, which is very much the same thing, but it just doesn't assume the destruction of people who have sex. One, one, yeah, one of the things that I've, I've noticed writing the dark paranormal romances is that it's all about pushing boundaries, about the thing that is dangerous, the thing that is bad for you. Uh, you know, the panther as a pet, 
sort of thing. How far <laughs> can you push it? How far can you take this thing that you know is really bad for you, that you know is dangerous, that you know is probably going to end badly, but ooh, it feels so good while you're doing it, um, whether that's breaking your diet or you know dating the vampire or trying to choose between you know your, your multitude of unearthly lovers. Um, it is all about walking that boundary, mm. and that's as long as the story is about walking the boundary rather than the, the, the gruesome end of it, I think that's how you stay on the line and you stay balanced. If you go one way or the other, then it, it doesn't really work as well. Panther is a pet. Is that an expression? I've never heard that before. That's beautiful. I love that. Panther no, is a pet. I just came up with that one. That's <laughs> genius. That's pure genius. Panther is a pet. I love that. It's her title, though. You can't use yeah. it. No. <laughs> Give me a quarter. It's on, on re recording, too. I was hoping it was in the dictionary of, no. of euphemism or something, you know. <coughs> Kathleen, did you have something to add? I have nothing to add. <laughs> well, that fascinated me, what you just said. And we'll get one more question before we go. Uh, the panther as a pet, the idea of desire being the ultimate mystery. Why am I attracted to this person and not that person? Or why am I attracted to those two people at the same time and not that person? Now, and why aren't they attracted back? Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> Right. The That's the dramatic situation. <laughs> right. So it goes. And you know what, what you really got at to me, I'm wondering if you agree with this, is it's Thanatos. It's the death impulse. Mm -hmm. We are attracted to that panther because that panther could kill us. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it is all about that. You know. Yeah, it's a profound, I mean, or orgasm or any kind of you know, finish to a romantic encounter, to an explicit romantic encounter. It's sort of like it's the end of, of a profound experience um, that may never be duplicated. And that that's, uh, really sort of uh, echoes the, the general feeling of loss um, that goes with any kind of love uh, and any kind of compulsion, any kind of uh, desire. Um, there's always this, this profound end to it, which obviously looks a lot like death. And I think that's, that's a lot of the attraction between those two forces. You may have thought that orgasm is the best note to end the panel on <laughs> at 11 a.m., but we have one more question. Please, gentlemen. Or lady. I think that's very true both of any kind of erotic behavior. It's also very true of any kind of um, violence, any kind of crime uh, in a mystery, especially stories told from the point of view of a criminal. Um, you know, there are, there are several different kinds of criminals, and the experience of the story is going to be so profoundly different based on what, uh, on how much the criminal is crossing their boundaries. Um, very similar to to the way it, it it the experience of the character is in in a story that's about sex. I want to thank our wonderful guests and thank this great audience. And I want to wish you a great day out at other panels. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mm -hmm.